Evening, Stanford. <laughs> we did that at the same time. Hello, Colin. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Not too scared. You make it sound like Halloween all of a sudden. Well, it's his coming close. Because, and also because we're talking about fear tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about fear before, haven't we? <laughs> yes, I was going to say we're talking about it again. Mm. This is one of my favourite topics, to be fair. But why? Why is fear your favourite topic? You see, for me, fear is innately part of who we are. Um, so it's actually, it's it's built into every aspect of us. And its purpose for me as a yogi is to keep me alive. I think fear has such power over us sometimes. And as a medic, as a psychiatrist especially, sometimes I almost like to name the fear a little bit, not to take the power away, but actually just put it on the table so we can examine and review it properly. Because sometimes, I mean, and you you probably have similar situation before working as a yoga therapist where you feel like you're talking with a client or patient round and round a topic, like trying to avoid the core and central issues. We're going around the symptoms of everything else. Actually, sometimes just, maybe I just got slightly impatient or I felt like actually we've done the dance enough times. So we need to address the core issues a little bit. It's like, what is actually the fear about? Is it about yourself? Is it about someone else? Is it about something else entirely? I give an example. Recently, I have had um, uh, kind of like a family clinic. Um, so the parents and the siblings comes in, we're having a bit of consultation. Uh, it was for one of the family members specifically. And we kind of gone round and round and round for about 45 minutes about everything we can do to help, medication, lifestyle modifications, social support, psychotherapy, gone through all the options, ups and downs, pros and cons. And I still feel like we're not getting anywhere. And finally, one of them was brave enough to pipe up and say, actually, we're a little bit worried about the interaction with this person because sometimes it it, it can be problematic. Can we talk about it? And then the whole conversation actually flows a lot better afterward because once we name what is actually the issues, we can actually talk about it and address it. So that's why it's one of my favorite topics, maybe. Okay. So for me, what you've just mentioned is is something kind of interesting. So I, I kind of split fear into a couple of the different areas as a therapist. The first is that I've got fear that's almost on the surface. So it's kind of like an obvious fear, in a way. Like where we turn around and say, you know, I'm I'm actually I'm petrified, you know, I'm fearful. So there is a kind of like an obvious fear on the surface. But then for me, there is also and what I'd like to do today is also look with you at, like you mentioned with the clinic, these different ideas of hidden fear. So fear that kind of is entangled and is within each of the cases that you as a psychiatrist and me as a therapist come across on a regular basis. These sort of almost these these hidden fears. But then we, we also have another two aspects within fear. You've got fear that is actually within the body. And then you've also got fear which is in the mind. So again, it's it, it, there. There's these sort of two different areas, and I, I come across fear in lots of different ways. I, I come across, you know, people that say, you know, I'm not a fearful person, you know, I'm not frightened, I'm, not, I'm never frightened. But then when I start to break down the different cases that I've had, even this week, if I go through different cases this week, I just kind of like, you know, one one person's, you know, the fear of actually being, you know, being themselves, this fear of actually being themselves. 
And then you kind of look at another case is, is, is someone's, you know, the fear of cancer returning. Um, another case of fear of failure, you know, an artist who's actually frightened of actually failing. So it creates certain patterns and certain things in a way. And then we've got some of the fear for their children and wants to look after their children. Another one, fear of losing their children in a custody battle. So you start, you've got another person, fear of success. And we've got other things like fear from moving on from a relationship. Um Fear from not being in control in a relationship. Fear of committing. Fear of not finding love again. Fear that not on the same page as a partner. Fear that someone is actually going to leave them. Fear of being seen. Fear that this is all it is and that's it. So we start to get lots of different aspects of fear. You know, fear of actually expressing oneself. So when I start to look at how fear starts to manifest itself in a, in a kind of clinical environment, actually what we start to get is exactly what you said, is that people tend to come into us and they come in and they start talking to us and they're talking about their condition. They're talking about the situation, but what they're not doing is they're not openly discussing the fear aspect of it. And I think in some way in a lot of modern setting, or at least in a lot of the social media posts that I've come across, fear also get a bad name. Because I think you said something very important, which is it's actually innate and natural part of life as well, because it's a survival mechanism. Like you said, fear sometimes is body, it's very, very physical. And I, I almost say it's very much in our nervous system as well. You, you and I both know, and we talked about this many times, how it's very much related to the sympathetic nervous system. It's, it's about the fight and flight so either you fight against your enemy because you got triggered or you're running away because you want to survive. You don't, you know, don't want to die or being chilled up in a, in a, in a natural life scenario. And, mm -hmm. and it has this quality that I think many people may, may suffer from anxiety or panic disorder or even post-traumatic stress disorder can recognize because when the sympathetic nervous system kick in you breathe a lot faster sometimes you almost feel like you're out of breath your heart pump a lot faster because you want the blood's going around your body and your muscles a lot more so you have this sensation of palpitation if you dry in your mouth nausea because it's not the time to eat you actually you need to concentrate and focus and run you may sweat you may tremble because the whole body's kind of in this getting ready state either you're fighting or you're flighting hmm. But how does that really work for us nowadays? Because we don't live in jungles anymore. Mm -hmm. At least not, not the natural jungles. We don't see, I never really seen lions and tigers outside of a zoo. I've never been to safari. Uh, so the, the natural threats to our survival is less. But at the same time, the stress that we experience is still very, very much real. Like you said, sometimes in relationships, sometimes it is we're losing our jobs. We are losing monies or livelihood. It may be because we're creating certain fear for ourselves because there's bad memories involved in the past or trauma. Mm -hmm. And actually having these memories actually means that even if there's no immediate and actual threat, the threat that exists in our memories, in our emotion, in some ways, very much real. And if we take that sort of as a starting point, um, with trauma, let's, let's, there's a couple of cases that I, I've seen recently. Um, 
the first is is a a gentleman who had a very very difficult childhood and within that childhood what happened was that there there was a situation that caused him so much trauma it kept repeating itself again and again that what he would do is he would disassociate so he would actually just sort of almost when there was this sort of threat that occurred he would just really create this sort of almost separate from himself within himself as part of a protection mechanism now many years on um he hadn't realized this as part of his mechanism coping mechanism with dealing with this and he always wanted to get back to a situation which would be as if he hadn't had that traumatic situation hacker in his life so he would go around and say look i you know i want to get to the point as if this didn't happen to me what what if this didn't happen to me however his response was very much all the time when anything threatened him at all whether that's physical mental emotional he would create this disassociation. He wasn't aware of it at all. So I, I think that when you're talking about origin of being trauma, and remember, if, if we think about fear, is, fear is something that keeps us alive, but it's also something that is triggered because we're fear of losing what we've got right now. And one thing we have right now is our life and living. And so that actually fear and that a life sort of combine right the way together. So for me, fundamentally, when there is PTSD, as you mentioned, or trauma in a particular way, let's say something like with cancer. So for me, again and again, with people that I've worked with who have been through this process, there is fear that occurs in lots of different ways. You know, the perception on themselves changes. There is fear that things will not get back to a good place again. There is fear with regard to the fact that this cancer may return. And all of this is tied up with a number of things. It's tied up to losing what we've got right now and the association and identification with who we actually are. So for me, there's with fear, we've also got association and identification and a reference about who we are within this whole thing. And that is also connected to fear. Does that Yes. And as you were speaking, I was kind of finding funny, not what you were talking about is actually my responses for both pathway that you mentioned, I can actually both answer uh, with the word attachment. Hmm. Like you said, the person with the childhood trauma, sometimes trauma is always difficult to deal with because it's subjectively a significant event that is quite aversive, it's very bad, it's suffering. Hmm. But especially when it happened quite young, especially maybe even in the sense that it happens from uh, someone who's looking after us, the, the primary caregiver, mm -hmm. that creates a lot of problems. So we're meant to attach to the per that person or that figure or that unit. Yeah. Uh, we're meant to feel secure and safe. But actually when there's trauma, which means we are not quite sure what the response is going to be, or, um, or sometimes we know the response is going to be bad, instead of protecting us, actually in some way they're hurting us or harming us. Mm -hmm. That can create a lot of fear. That can create very very much instability. And you and I have seen this quite a few times. And again, we always caveat this, which is we've both seen slightly more unusual, slightly less everyday scenarios sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
But in these scenarios, actually, it really destabilizes a person, I think. And they almost feel like, I don't know who to trust, who not to trust anymore, because they don't have that secure attachment. Mm. And attachment on the other side was talking about what, what you're thinking about. How, how do we actually attach, almost like the modern day psychology term, like how do we attach to idea of being alive, our health, our money, our livelihood, our family, our partner? Do we do we hold on to it intensely? Can we detach from it completely? Is that healthy or is there somewhere in between that we need to follow? So for me, you've mentioned a number of things. One is you've got fear on one hand. And on the other side, you've got stability, you've got trust, and you've also got secure attachment. But fear can also come from attachment as well, because we don't want to lose something in a particular way. So if I get a given idea is that why do we, with fear, why do sometimes we get a fight response or a strong, aggressive conflict reaction? Almost what happens is that we touch on something where someone is holding on to something so tightly indeed and they're frightened of losing that or frightened of letting go of that because they don't feel safe in a particular way that actually they create a response back which is very conflict driven you know very aggressive so almost you know i get i get conversations with people so in a case this week where what happens is that i was speaking to this young person who said i'm having difficulty with the parent and this parent is shouting at me and trying to make me do lots of different things. And it's making me feel very upset. And so I started to ask lots of questions about the situation, began to sort of uncover numbers of things that actually the parent was caring a lot. But they were so frightened of what was going on that actually they were attacking and really aggressive. Mm. And the attack and the aggression was interpreted in the wrong way it wasn't seen as caring but it created a lot of fear from the other person because they didn't want to actually experience that so in fact fear is created two different things but attachment forms very much part of the fear process because we, we need to be holding on to something like this parent was holding on to an idea about how this young person should be or ought to be or must be mm. And they were frightened that if they weren't that, what were they going to be? And they weren't going to be successful or they weren't going to be that or they weren't going to be other. So the attachment also has a connectivity with desire. Someone wants something to be something. So there also needs to be a wanting aspect within it. So fundamentally, you know, if we're looking at fear, you know, we don't want to lose what we've got right now. We Actually, it protects us and keeps us alive. There's a desire for life. We want to live. You know, it's an expression of everything. So this desire, I want to live, happens. There's an attachment to our body. You know, we 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 kind of, we, we need to inhabit it in order to live. So these are fundamental aspects of it. But then it starts to play out in lots of different ways, like in this scenario. So we get these attachments and desires, which are manifestations of this deeper attachment desire coming forward into the way that we're operating. Yeah. And I think I think the way that you are dissecting is very good because there, there is this uh, little hierarchy or feararchy I, I I come across mm -hmm. where it talks about different levels of fear where at the top is about the death of our ego so like our, our, our as you said our identity who who am I the next one is the separation the next one is autonomy our, our power to say no or yes or decide for ourselves then it's body bodily mutilation and extinction. But in some way, I can almost see it 
in a slightly different way, which is actually there is always going to be fear in us because in order, if we are alive, there will be something that we can lose. Rather, it's our identity. Rather, it's the immediate relationship that we can have. Rather, it's our capacity to decide for ourselves. Rather, it's about our body suffering, pain, actually feeling healthy, or actually just to be alive and you know not being exist in existence at all. So there's always something which. In some way, I don't know, it almost sounds a little bit comforting to me because it's almost like make it sounds like it's the companion of life. It's a human condition that I need to understand. I need to learn how to cope with, but not necessarily I need to get rid of. Because sometimes I think the battle that I can get into is how do I get rid of fear? Because that's really hard. Well, I think there's fear and there's fear. Um, and I think that, I, I really mean this, and I'll say this because if I define so fear in a number of yoga texts, you describe fear beautifully at the beginning with regard to its responses. You know, with regard to breath. You know, I can't breathe. Your heart kind of pumps. You know, there, there's a kind of a sweating response. You can't hold things. Um, you you have a dry mouth. There is nausea. Almost this is the opening description within the Bhagavad Gita, the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. But it, it's beautiful. It shows that there is actually fear with regard to what we have to do and step up to in life. And I think that fear also provides a realization that we're actually alive. It gives us that kind of that realization that we are really alive. And that life is 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 actually very fragile and, and very sort of it it's almost it's 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 a difficult thing to actually be alive mm. but on the other side of it we've got fear which is if you combine fear with like you mentioned identity and then you add imagination to it you get anxiety and so for me this is a kind of like a different fear it's almost like it's a fear cocktail it's not it's not sort of a almost a, a very sort of a deep, deep, deep fear that we're coming to face. It's more of a sort of a fear that is to do with, let's say, what if? Yeah. You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if the other happens? But in a way, that what if is the creative force for humanity. It's allowed us to actually express ourselves, to grow, to do so many different things in humanity to evolve what if this what if that what if the other which is fantastic but you combine that what if with fear you know what if this happens it'll be a disaster what if that happens it'll be a disaster what if this goes on this will be a disaster and suddenly it becomes a destructive force and so for me on two sides of it is that if we are anxious we can't be creative and both of them have imagination involved in things, but one has more fear in it than something else. Mm. But in a way, fear can be a driving force, a force for actually for change to occur. You know, if we're fearful of something, it can drive us into action. So we can use and harness that fear to actually do something in this world. Yeah. And we have seen cases of that as well. Mm. I think I think it was very interesting, especially in Bhagavad Gita as well, because there, there are there are also some description, if I remember correctly, in the Gita, how 
how people then react to fear because that's the response of fear the symptoms of fear but then how do they respond and that's these archetypes that i come across and depending on your personality and depending i think about how you what you said about the imaginations some people procrastinate because they don't want to start like Ar- arjuna is that right they don't want to go into he doesn't want to go into battle then there are the people who who sometimes i know i'm fairly called the sheep they just want to follow the rules then there are people who just want to peace people or oh i'm you know i'm i'm an outcast because i don't want to be rejected there are the people who then self-doubt is this what i need to do is this what i'm meant to do or should i be doing something else i don't think this is a good idea there is the excuse maker it's like mm, no i don't want to take this responsibility someone else should do it i'm not the right person for it and that's the pessimist like you said earlier on that everything is a disaster because the imagination combines so well with fear and I think that's quite interesting because we see a range of these presentation. Actually, a lot of it was stem from fear. And, and, and what, what happens is that quite often these presentations appear in clinics or in situations on the guise of something else. So if we think about it, you've then got, you know, you've got a person that says, you know, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not bright enough, I'm not attractive enough. You know, I feel I feel really low, I feel this, I feel that, I feel the other. And actually what's happening is that it, it becomes into one of these categories, which is that someone has had an experience of something and that experience frightens them because of what we've spoken about. So let's say, you know, someone's gone to a family party, They've, they've, you know, experienced a whole load of things there with members of a family. And it's brought some stuff up, either from their past or from something that's occurred for them. They feel very frightened. And then what happens is that instead of facing those emotions and being honest, they turn them and flip them into themselves and actually create a narrative rather than say, actually, I'm really frightened of this, this, and this, or this is the feeling or emotion I've got, they'll push that feeling or emotion into themselves and create self-doubt. I can't do this. I'm not good at that. I can't do the other. So it becomes this kind of doubting aspect of it. And for me, it's doubt, but it's got some conflict in it as well. Because often, you know, if you think about fight and flight, you've got freeze, which is part of it as well. And so for me, this is almost, it's like a freeze response, but there's a kind of conflict in that because rather than allowing the energy to sort of dissipate and go through as it should go through, what happens is we flip it and turn it and flip it and turn it. And then we distract everyone on the surface with regard to the, I'm not good enough, or I'm not this, or I'm not that, or I'm not the other. And the underlying thing is that we're frightened of something. And And that that thing on the surface we get distracted by. And then most people go in to try and help them. Oh, no, you're really good at this. You're really good at that. And actually what's happening is this is a whole distraction technique. And sometimes I almost describe it as like a stuckness. You meet Mm -hmm. someone that they're quite, as you said, the freeze response is there where maybe emotionally or psychologically that there's a bit of getting stuck and don't quite want to move on. And as you said, you offer them one advice and they will say, oh yeah, but that is in play as well. So I can't quite do that. How about that, that route? No, 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 but then that is also in place. And then you back it into original issues of like kind of going round and round in loop and you can't quite see 
a way out of the solution uh, of the situation in some way. Hmm. I do wonder how do we help people with fear or cut to the chase in in some way? Because one, you don't want to touch a nerve, like you said earlier on. You don't want to trigger something because sometimes that can be an issue. Hmm. Also, sometimes like when's the best point of time to help people? I think in 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 the, with anxiety in psychology, we th- we think there's a natural flow or a natural phase of anxiety like anxiety often builds up on its own like you start with something it may be sometimes we call it a top-down response you think of something you get more and more nervous you start feeling the symptoms or anxiety or fear and then you kind of rolls and then get worse and worse and worse sometimes i describe it as a bottom-up response you may be running for the bus for something or you miss a meal there's something about your body that's not quite comfortable and then the bot, then the mind mistaken it as a signal for fear, anxiety, and then that start building up more and more and more. Eventually, both kind of end up towards the same direction, which is you have the peak of anxiety, where both the bodily symptoms and emotional response are at its peak, like saying, "My God, screaming! I'm really so anxious and so afraid." But then in, in psychology, at least in modern psychology, we see it that that's usually a natural peak. And then you will slowly tell gay and it's like, yeah, it finishes. I, actually, I can talk myself out of it, realize that was not the reality. Maybe it's not so rational. I'm OK. And and sometimes that theory actually is helpful for some of my patients. Not always, but some for some of my patients, it's actually helpful because they realize when the fear or anxious anxiety kicks in, there will be a natural point where they can realize actually this is no longer reality this is just my mind speaking creating the scenario i can snap out of it and then with time they can but not always and i also think that it, it all depends on the circumstance and the expression that's going on so if what's happening is let's say you've got someone who is in a situation where and and i i like another way that freeze this idea of freeze kicks in is that someone doesn't do anything and one of the mechanisms that occurs is that i've got someone who they say no to everything it's absolutely everything they say no to so and the reason they say no is that they are frightened of being rejected and they're also frightened of asking for help and so when i start to talk to them about this about these things is that well no is a good answer because actually then they can be autonomous they don't have to rely on anyone else they don't get rejected by anything and you know they they, so we've got really good reasons for actually saying no and also for reinforcing the fear so what we do is when we start to speak to people about this is we start to see how they put these excuses in place right the way around to protect the identity of the situation that's in place And for me, this means that we're taking a different approach with each person because we need to understand the defensive mechanism that they're holding on to, which protects the narrative that they're putting in place, which holds the fear cycle in place and the pattern of fear in place so that actually what we can't do is we can't disrupt that. And if we try and disrupt it too directly, they'll run away from us. Because again, this is another fear response. You'll run away. Or they'll attack us in the opposite direction. Well, how can you say that? Well, you know, what do you know about this? You know, so what we find is that we find that we have to step around very carefully. 
And for me, I take lots of different approaches all the time. I ask so many questions. And because all of this is different for each person. Yeah. And for some people, if you give the direction, the advice too soon, everything's lost. For other people, it, it, you, you've got to wait because often these things follow cycles and follow patterns. And each time it follows a cycle and a pattern, you can actually start to give just a little bit of awareness each point in time, these cycles and patterns go through. Whereas if you give the whole thing from the outset and go, come on, this is really easy. You can navigate this. You can say, yes, you can do this. You can do that. You can do the other. They can, you know, they're like, of course they can, but they never do it. And then they feel really bad about themselves that they couldn't do that. And we, so we go into another cycle of stuff. So for me, with what you mentioned, is that I think that maybe we need to consider each individual person, each individual case. And then with each individual person, each individual case, we'll start to basically understand what, you know, what's their... What is the mechanism that they are going to based on their fear? How is that fear manifesting in their behavior? How are those cycles then playing out? And actually, it may look different, but it's all exactly the same, but they just haven't seen it. Hmm. I was thinking, actually, that one of the archetypes that I mentioned, people pleasing as well, because we talked about that before. Whereas actually, now that we, you're explaining it this way, I'm seeing a slightly different light because people pleasing sometimes manifest in a way that, oh, I'm very easy. You can decide, like you can decide what we do. And in some way, that's a mechanism of saying, well, actually, I'm not going to get rejected because I'm not making suggestions. So whatever I do is someone else's suggestion. Mm -hmm. And also, if that fails, that's also not my fault. I didn't have to bear responsibility. Someone else must make the decision. Right. But on the outset... I'm good. I, I'm 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 happy. I'm going along with other people's mm. direction, and I'm actually not arguing with people. I'm being nice. Yeah. Uh, we talked a lot about that as well, being nice. Um, and I think that is so interesting. And how then to navigate around that? Because you, again, as you say, you don't want to almost attack it straight on. It's like, no, you're not being nice. You're just running away from responsibility. It's like, well, you have to navigate around that slightly and quite quite gently. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, how to point out actually not quite people pleasing. You are deliberately not making decisions. Yeah. And sometimes to bust someone on that is the right thing to do. But at other times it will create an issue where someone will run away. Mm -hmm. So if I give another example, I, there's so, there was um, someone that I was speaking to who was, who was very frightened about the state of our environment and the world. And they're so concerned about the environment and the world that it's actually consuming. They're not able to sleep at night. It's consuming every aspect of their life. And they can't, they don't feel there's a future or a hope. And they're really frightened that the world is going to end very soon. So in one way, there's this anxiety of the world. and But there's also a drive that they want to change the world. Hmm. Yet they're directing and putting all their power into the fear and into the anxiety and they're feeding this fear and feeding this anxiety that the whole world is going to end and they can't do anything about it but in another way they want to use their ability to do something about it mm. so we and find ourselves in a situation in, in 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 cases like this where actually how do we unravel that fear 
How do we start to work with someone so that they change the strength of the focus that's being made towards the fear and the anxiety? And they start to harness that power and energy that's being put into that, into themselves so that they can make a difference in this world. So almost there's going to be a journey from one point to another point in steps that are logical, that the brain can understand to move from one point to another point. Mm. So almost by your description, fear in some ways quite similar to another emotion that we discussed quite a bit before, which is anger. Mm. It can be a driving force that we can, almost quite transformative, we can move from one direction to another. Yeah. And the fear of future is not uncommon as well. I was gonna, I was thinking actually, I think in the two thousand and five American poll, there was uh, future is one of the top ten amongst like thirteen and seventeen years old. I think I'm guessing in in America, but also terrorist attacks, spider death, mm-hmm. war, criminal and gang violence, being alone, nuclear war, and just war in general and failure. Mm-hmm. And I think these are a common list of is problem a good word or issues or goal in some way that we need to conquer i guess you know hopefully there won't be much terrorist attack spider can be it can be quite primal actually i think fear of insects and spiders and even snakes can be quite primal death is quite common failure i think especially in the age group that they study the poems 13 to 17 is quite a big thing. And I think we talked about that quite a bit as well in yoga or, or specifically yoga therapy, actually helping young people to l- get more confidence and conquer fear is a big thing. So I think that I, I define fear from yoga's perspective. It, 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 it flows on its own, even for the wise. It means that even though we can have a huge amount of experience and a lot of wisdom, almost that there is just such a flow of fear that runs right the way through everything, that whether it's war, whether it's failure, whether it's death, whether it's losing everything that we possess or own, fear does creep in for all of us. It flows for all of us. And so I think that fear has a a mechanism or a pattern within each of us. There's some sort of, and if I can begin to be aware of that mechanism or pattern, I can do something about it. So it's there, you know, I I said to you, I didn't think I was frightened until I got on a horse. And then I thought, okay, I realize I'm I'm frightened, but I also realized there was a difference between a physical fear and a mental fear. And how if we can work with the mind and start to work to on belief, we can begin to work to conquer fear. So for me also as well, the opposite of fear is belief. Mm. So how, what I believe in, what I trust, because you mentioned this earlier on, you mentioned about trust and you've got trust, you've got faith, you've got belief, you've got conviction all of these things this 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 strength of willpower that's within us provides a stability Mm. and that is the only antidote for fear and i think in some way that's why 
it is actually quite important to have these foundation when there isn't already fear in the system. Because I almost feel like when once fee, fear has been really seeded and started growing, to start working on the belief, maybe it's a good way too, because then you can really identify what helps. But having the experience of belief and courage before I felt is more important. Reason being, you know, I went skiing for the first time this year mm-hmm. and I've gone on to those, uh, is it called gondola? You know, those kind of um, swinging things that where your feet are hanging out and you know I'm deaf fear of height. Mm-hmm. So I know going on the trips, like I'm going to be very scared because I'm going on the height on the gondola. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I can prepare myself in some way. What I didn't expect was actually once I'm on the skis and then on the top of the mountain, and not even actually at the top, I'm just like halfway on the mountain or you've one third of the way off the mountain. I got really scared because once you, I, what I didn't realize is if you're at the top of the slope going down, you can't actually see the contour clearly because there's always a little bit of decline. And there's sometimes even the smallest bump means that you can't see what your road is clearly in front of you. And because I don't know the area well, whereas the people that I went to, uh, the area has gone there for like 25 years plus, they know the area really well. So they know actually on one side and the other side, there are trees, they're protected, it's actually plain, it's not a cliff. My imaginations ran completely wild. I think, my God, on one side is a cliff, on the other side, sharp stones, on one side is this, on the other side is that. I'm going to take one wrong turn, I'm going to fall, I'm going to die, I'm going to break my leg, I'm going to break both of my legs. <laughs> like we said earlier on. No, it's, thank goodness I wasn't there with you. I I just turned around to you. And, what are you talking about? Just pull yourself together. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm joking because I wouldn't actually. But <laughs> what you've just mentioned here is actually something very funny because actually it, it, it means that you, if we look at this, if you break down what you just said, it's beautiful because you actually described everything. You've described that actually we are going into an experience for the first time not knowing. And it means that actually the root of fear is that we don't know, like fear of dying. We don't know what's going to happen when we die or after death. You know, so actually we want to know, we want to be safe, we want to be secure. So in a way we have this experience and we don't know. But what we also have is that it's like we apply this appears again and again in situations, let's say in relationships. Why is someone frightened to commit? They don't know because they can only go as deep in a relationship as they've been before. And to go any further than that, they don't know. So they become frightened. They sort of start to move back and just go, well, you know, it's not you. It's me. I just need a bit of time to think about this. Um, you know, I, I it, it, they haven't been there before. It's like it's like they're on that ski slope with you at that point in time. And they don't know. There's rocks on one side. There's trees on the other side. They, you know, they haven't done this before. And the other person is just kind of going, well, it's simple. You know, we've been dating for 25 years. I think we should move in together. Yes. <laughs> or get married. Yeah, exactly. Um, or not, as the case may be. Because then, the, you know, the opposite is also true as well, is that actually it may not be that you need to get married. It may, there may be a kind of a, a fear that if you don't, someone's going to leave you. I mean, I've had that this week as well. So that someone feels that unless they get married you know, they're not going to be safe in the relationship. And the other person is saying, well, we are safe in the relationship. Let's go deep in our relationship so that actually what we can do is we can overcome this fear because then it doesn't matter whether we get married or not. We're getting married for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons. 
And this is the other thing with fear is that actually it makes us do things and act in a particular way that's weird. Well, like me having a breakdown at the top of a snow mountain. I don't believe that at all. I think you just said you just said that. Oh, 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 I did. I was I have like a full five, ten minutes up there, like literally inching forward like a worm. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. At the end, I learned how to ski. But but how do you then bring the people into the unfamiliar place? Because it takes a lot of navigation. It takes a lot of almost distraction, I would say, sometimes, because you're almost trying to move them forward whilst distracting them. So I see, and then I have to show them after. Actually, see, look back. You you have actually skied down like 10 meters or something. But this is what we're doing in the first place, is that when we're frightened, we tend to change direction and avoid something, which means that we've got the capacity to change direction in a different way as long as we provide the stability for that to happen. And the stability and the wisdom become very important because actually a lot of the feelings that we've got are normal and they're really okay to have. It's just that we don't know about them. We don't know how to express them. And quite often we're not aware of them. And I'm seeing this quite a bit with people is that actually they really aren't aware of the feelings that they've got. They don't sort of understand them. Well, I also have to ask medication, because in in some scenarios, and the scenario is probably more common in my work setting, medication actually can be important too, because it it does provide a lot of way in a lot of ways stability, where the sensation of anxiety is not so strong or can be taken away or numbed down slightly, so that they can move forward and practice moving forward. But I do often find then how long do they need to stay on medication for? Even as a psychiatrist, I, I, it's always a trial and error. I don't know. I really don't. I, I actually, I, I just, you know, I find, I find, I, I look to you for that that kind of reference because I, I don't know anything about this. I'm so, I'm so glad that we're both saying that. Actually, not sure because no. I think, I think everyone's different, and we, I've done it sometimes where actually like you said we, we can show them what they've conquered and actually it is possible they can try but for some people it becomes a ne- necessity or necessary part of their life where they can keep moving forward but actually they need something else something additional to help mm. them keep moving forward so i've seen both mm. <clears throat> uh, i like the list you came out with regard to behaviors as well so people that don't want to do something or people that are you know fearful so they follow things and i think that almost in a way that validation or recognition from others you know the fear of not being validated and the fear of not being recognized is an interesting thing that I come up against quite a bit because it's about fitting in Mm. and or belonging. And actually, because there's that fear in place, we tend to hand our independence and our autonomy over to other people. And it actually puts us in a difficult situation. And even more vulnerable situation sometimes. Exactly. And so we tend to then accept things we shouldn't accept 
And I've had a number of cases this week with people who have that fear and are looking for to be validated. But it, it, it's, it, it, it does, it creates a, a number of issues. And it's also frightening to begin to observe oneself and see one's behavior in this way. Because mm-hmm. often we have an idea about how or who we think we are. And then it's very frightening to see that we're actually someone else. And again, with your medication is that often we think we're a particular person, but it's very frightening to actually take medication to deal with something in a particular way. So all of these things are to do with losing what we have right now or losing what we think we have right now or who we are right now and holding on to who we actually think we are. And it's different to who we. Mm. I I really like that perspective because I was thinking another fear that a lot of people I met have is the fear of not being heard as well. Mm. I was thinking in many, many different ways, we I've heard the expressions like, oh, I'm just not being heard. I what I'm asked for hasn't been given to me. They never look after me. They never care for me. But actually, in some ways, sometimes actually that gives me a perspective where when I what I've observed is they haven't actually asked, or they haven't asked the question, they haven't actually say the right thing for what they wanted, or how they said it actually meant something else, which mm-hmm. means people actually have heard them but heard the wrong thing. And but the fear is so entwined in the whole thing, that's why they step around it and not direct with it. Mm. So again, this fear of not being seen or not being heard, these are two very common things. Um, and the fear of not being seen leads to sort of some quite almost expressive behaviour in lots of extreme ways. So you can get sort of, almost extreme attention-seeking behavior because there there is that fear in place. On the other side of it, fear of not being heard. It's it's very, very common because how do we express ourselves? How do we express what we're feeling, what we want? And... Often in relationships, we don't talk about things in a way. We almost make an assumption that because we've thought about it, it's obvious to us. It must be obvious to someone else. And because we've said a couple of things in a roundabout way, we think we've said it and we think they've heard it, but they haven't heard it at all. Mm. And I think that how fear is bound into almost every single part of our action and our being in our current society is very interesting. Mm. I, I would propose that fear starts health issues because of it. Mm. Well, I can, I can think of one good example, actually, we're having a discussion with someone else today about kind of the consumerism buying advert is almost a lot of it stem from fear of not being good enough mm-hmm. 
because the sales pitch is almost like if you buy this handbag or if you buy this I don't know, microwavable food, or if you buy this dress, or if you buy this pair of shoes, or this makeup, this new wallet, whatever it may be, or even this bond, you'll be better, your life will be better, and you will be better, and you'll be good enough. And that's one of the symptoms I can, I, I think I agree with that. Mm, I, I would, I would agree with this as well. I think that fear is a wonderful tool for motivating and selling things i also think that it can stop you from doing something or make you do something as well mm. so in the way that it make you do something it make you it can make you buy something or in that way it's like an insurance policy you're frightened that your house will burn down you're frightened that you'll lose your car so it's an insurance policy you'll buy it but on the other side of it it is that it can stop you from doing things it can stop you from moving forward in your life. It can stop you from traveling, from going somewhere, from talking to someone, from picking the phone up, from replying to a text message, from actually picking up an opportunity. It can actually stop you dead. So I see it in both directions. And I also I've come across shame as an outcome of fear. I remember speaking to someone a couple of weeks ago who was mugged outside a gym and they just come out and someone came up and threatened them with a knife and took their phone took their bags and took their car as well and this person had positioned themselves as quite a strong person and they were with a friend at the time and they're feeling about how they'd position themselves their friend as a hard strong person and the reality of how they responded during that issue and situation when they were marked they handed everything over gave the keys took everything and just take it take everything take it take it take it whereas if you'd have caught them a few hours beforehand, they'd be like, yeah, I'd have taken anyone, I'd have done anything. You know, there's a whole different sort of setup within all of this. And so for me, you know, there's this tie up of shame that comes into place based on a fearful response to things or a response that is different from who you wanted other people to see you as. And yet you were exposed to the situation which made people see you and made yourself see yourself as something different. Yeah. I was going to say another, another manifestation I can think of is also the imposter syndrome as well. Mm. I'm actually this person, I'm actually doing the role or am I pretending to be, am I actually good enough? Am I just saying the words that I meant to say, or actually am I channeling it? Because as yoga teacher, we almost talks about this quite a lot. How many more books do I need to buy? How many more training courses I need to attend until I feel like I'm actually confident enough to be a yoga teacher? Or do I need to just set up my own classes or my own retreats or my own training courses? I can move forward. This this kind of like, this comes back to what I was talking about earlier with regard to almost punishing oneself, you know, not good enough, not enough, not bright enough, not attractive enough, don't have enough. There's some 
you know, there's a fear of this kind of inadequacy and a fear of confidence that's within us. So I, I, I agree with you within this. And it, if we start to, again, pick up these approaches that you were talking about working with this, how do we change that narrative step by step so that we start to feed the belief that you are you know rather than turn around and go no, you you know you are you're good enough you're good you can do this come on you can get on you can and convince them with words yeah, exactly it, it, how do we create the steps so that there's actually the smallest possible successes that are experienced and this becomes very interesting because when we create an experience where there is success, quite often when there is fear, we deny that success. We turn around and go, well, I could have done so much better. And we pick up on that the kind of negative aspect of things. And so almost in a way, we start to see that it becomes quite challenging to create those steps. It's almost in a way, it's very simple when we give it a formula and just kind of go, well, the formula for success is to, we've got to build some confidence. But actually on the way to build that confidence, we find that we sabotage it all the way as we go through it. Okay, so actually, you know, how do we get to a point where someone has behaved in an awful way to us and we can process that and find a middle ground to move forwards? But yet when we're frightened, we then put ourselves in a position where we kind of go, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, I'm never going to go there again because, because, you know what I mean? So we do this kind of whole thing because we need to, in one way, face fear head on, but we also need to put the steps in place so that we get the success, but recognize the success. And on the other side of it, that success doesn't actually increase us too much. It sets us up for a fall later on. And then we're frightened to repeat the process again. And then the other thing that happens is when we experiment to do something, to try and get some success and it doesn't work, we never repeat it again because it didn't work the first time. So how do we experiment with our relationship when we're fearful? Mm. And that relationship is with ourselves and also with other people. Mm. I think keep trying is a good way forward but I again I keep coming back to my skiing example because I remember my instructor was so amazing she gave me a lot of exercises how to gently uh, zigzag down the slope like one exercise you do this just like two turns another two turns you do different exercise then you do another two exercise and then I, she did the thing was like look back see you get you came down that slope it's like, ah, okay, now do it again. And then the day after, do it again. But maybe slightly different things and slightly different slope. And then I, again and again there, I build a confidence that one, first of all, I recognize that it's actually not a cliff on my left and not on my right. So I actually not gonna die. So thankful. And two, I can actually slowly control my speed and actually I can do some of it. I'm not great, definitely not a good skier, but I, I can move forward without dying. Well, so things have progressed a long way in the last few years. Normally what would happen is that if you didn't do that, someone would just push you to just get you down. And me going down screaming, I'm going to die. <laughs> and then when you get to the bottom, they'll go, look, so you didn't die. What's your problem? <laughs> do it again. <laughs> it's a bit like swimming, isn't it? It's just kind of like, there you go. You push you into the deep end and just like, you've got to swim. Otherwise you die. Yeah. You can do that too. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, but, but can you, it's, it's very interesting when you start to see the approaches to these things and you also start to see how other people don't recognize the fear in people and how to work with it. Yeah. Because actually to work with it in really small steps, there becomes huge success. Whereas if what it is, is that it appears very easy for us, you know, just, just get in a swim. It's easy. Just get, just, just, just go straight down the slope. You'll be fine. Okay. It, it's not the right approach. It has to be such small steps. But also sometimes have the courage to bust the narrative as well. And have that support so there is this trust in place because we're actually dealing with not knowing when we're dealing with fear. Mm. Hey, good to speak to you tonight. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> See you next time. Look forward to it.